I forgot to mention, this Wednesday prayer meeting is not here. It's at the Fundenberger's house. So uh, just remember, we'll, we'll send that an email. But FYI, it's at the Fundies. The Fundy place. Um, okay, well, if you're staying, we're, we're in our last message from the book of Nehemiah. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles, if you have one, to Nehemiah chapter 13. This is the end of our series on Ezra and Nehemiah. And in fact, here we come, in this, in this chapter, we come to the end of the Old Testament, which you probably think is a strange thing to say, because if you open your Bibles to, Ezra, to Nehemiah, you're only halfway through the Old Testament. After that is Esther and, and the, the wisdom literature, Psalms, Proverbs, the prophets. But all of that stuff happens in time prior to Nehemiah 13. <laughs> There's joy in the room. All of that happens before Nehemiah 13. Nehemiah 13 is the end of the Old Testament story, the narrative, the history of what happened. It's the last thing we know between then and 400 years later when we have the beginnings of the New Testament. So this is how the Old Testament ends chronologically. So how does it end? We might have, we might have wanted it to end the way it, it ended last week when we were in chapter 12 and the beginning of chapter 13. Uh, that was what we called the fruit of 100 years of God's activity when he was renewing the people of Israel and the city after they had been in exile. And so about a hundred years later, after they had returned to Jerusalem and a hundred years of God's activity, everything seemed to be looking really great. Uh, the people were in their city, the temple and the altar had been rebuilt, houses were starting to go up, there was a wall that was rebuilt, and the people themselves were rejoicing in God's grace they rejoiced in their priests uh, who were intercessors for them before God, um, and they were responsive to God's Word. They were all the things that looked like renewal. And so it looked like after a hundred years that everything was going great. It would seem that the relationship between God and man had been healed um, there was camaraderie and oneness, so the relationship between man and man was healed, um, and all was going well. But unfortunately, that is not how the Old Testament ends. There's an epilogue. There's a final chapter. And in the final chapter, we see that things fall apart. The center cannot hold to quote William Butler Yeats, or Yeats, famous poem. The message today is things fall apart without Jesus. That's the, that's the story. Things fall apart without Jesus because as we're going to see, only Jesus could fix what's wrong with Israel and only Jesus could fix what's wrong with you and me. He is the Savior that we all need. We're going to read chapter 13, verses 4 through 9, and uh, that'll give us an introduction to what's going on, and then we'll ask for God's understanding as we go through this chapter. Let me read that, then we'll pray. 
Now before this, Eliashib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time, I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem. And I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers. And I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. We'll stop there and pray. We ask you again, Lord, to make these ancient words and ancient times come back to life to us now. Because as you were then, you are today. As, as people were then, they are today. What you were doing with them is something you're still doing with us. But we need eyes to see it. We especially need eyes to see your great solution, which is Jesus Christ. We ask that he would be glorified today. In his, in his name we pray. Amen. Let's start with a little context for these events that happened that we just read. Somewhere between the dedication of the wall in chapter 12 and the reading of the book of Moses in chapter 13, Nehemiah had gone back to Babylon. Verse 6 says he had returned to King Artaxerxes in the 32nd year of his reign, which means that Nehemiah had been in Jerusalem for about 12 years. Uh, he asked permission from the king in his 20th year to go to Jerusalem, and now he's going back to the king in the 32nd year. So he's been the governor of Jerusalem for 12 years, and he went to fulfill his promise that he would be back again. So he goes back to the king and leaves Jerusalem in what seems like good hands, because it all ended very well uh, at the end of chapter 13, verse 3. So he comes back um, later, but while he's away, as the saying goes, the mice, when the cat's away, the mice will play. Um, this is a classic example of that. While he was gone, in the absence of Nehemiah's leadership, things began to fall apart beginning with this incident regarding Tobiah and continuing on with even more unsettling things that we're going to discover as we read through the chapter. So our path this morning is first to see how things fell apart while Nehemiah was gone. And then we'll consider Nehemiah's final reaction to all this work of his unraveling after he'd been there for 12 years. And then we'll end with God's answer to Nehemiah and to us about our fallen condition. Because he pleads, he has a plea to God at the end. And then we'll find out what God's answer is. 
So the first point is that things fall apart. Things fall apart. When Nehemiah returned to Jerusalem after his years of absence, he discovered four main ways that the renewal of God's people was unraveling. We'll look at those four, and this is going to take some time uh, to walk through. It's not the most encouraging thing to do, to walk through you know, the four bad things that happened when Nehemiah was gone. But we're going to go through those because you kind of need to go through a dark valley in order for the light at the end to seem that much brighter. And the light at the end is very bright, but you have to walk through the dark valley, the Mines of Moria first, I guess, uh, for you Lord of the Rings fans like me. So hang on till the end. We're going to go through what was wrong, though. How did things fall apart? So we already read the first one. It's in verses 4 through 9 which we can summarize this way, the spiritual leadership was compromised. The spiritual leadership of Israel was compromised. Uh, If you've been with us for this series on Nehemiah, you might remember the name Tobiah. He is Tobiah the Ammonite, so he's from the nation of Ammon, and that is a nation that was a longtime enemy of Israel, and Tobiah embodied that enmity. In the earlier chapters, Tobiah was greatly displeased when Nehemiah came to Jerusalem to seek the welfare of the people. Uh, He was opposed to this. He fought tooth and nail against the rebuilding of this city and and the, the Jews moving back in. So Tobiah is an enemy, and he intended to do personal harm to Nehemiah. So imagine Nehemiah's shock when he returns to Jerusalem after he's been gone a few years, and he finds out Tobiah has taken up residence in the spiritual center of Jerusalem. He has a large chamber in the courts of the house of God. And that's not just some spare room that was empty that a guy could, like, you know, put his stuff, you know, like like a rental. No, he lived where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and so on. So those are the things that were used, the supplies that were used in the worship life of the temple. So Tobiah, the enemy, moves into the temple, and the articles for worship move out. (laughs) How did that happen? Well, we learned that it was Eliashib, the priest, who authorized it. He actually prepared the large room for him. In fact, he was the high priest, the highest spiritual leader of Israel. He said, I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. Now, that's more than just a backstab uh, to Nehemiah. You know, my enemy is, is, you know, like he's in the seat of power now. He's in the center of life. Uh, the spiritual life of the, of the city. It's more than just a backstab. It's a compromise in devotion to God at the highest levels. The high priest did this. The guy who's supposed to be leading them in worship, and he breaks the commandment we just read about in verse 2 from last week that no Ammonite should ever enter the assembly of God. And here's Tobiah the Ammonite living in the temple. (laughs) 
and the high priest did it. The spiritual leadership wasn't even following the Lord fully. They were making way for the enemies of Israel to gain influence in the worship life and the civic life of, of the people. So what did Nehemiah do? Well, he was very angry, it says. He threw all of the household furniture out. <laughs> he cleaned house. He evicted him. And he gave orders to return the chamber to its original purpose, and they moved back in the vessels of the house of God. Unless we think that was a little out of line, I mean, just like dumping the guy's stuff out. Don't forget that 400 years later, somebody else would enter the temple and turn over tables and get people out of there and say, stop making my house a den of robbers. This is a house of prayer. This is just a little window into that future event. Zeal for my father's house will consume me, Jesus said. And it did for Nehemiah too. This incident, though, is a physical illustration of a spiritual reality, which is that the church is always going to be tempted to allow a secular influence to push out true devotion to God. Tobiah comes in, the vessels for worship go out, and often through the compromises of the spiritual leaders, the pastors, and the teachers. That's a tremendous pressure. There's a great pressure on the church to yield to what Jesus called the commandments of men, or what Paul called philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. There's always pressure on the church leaders to compromise and drift from the purity and the truth and the goodness of, of God's word and the faith once delivered to all the saints. There's always pressure like that. I have to say that's a sobering reality for us as pastors. We don't want to be the ones to do that. We want to take seriously Paul's exhortation to the elders of Ephesus in Acts chapter 20 when he said, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Men like Tobiah. And I know sometimes we pastors can be frustrating and maybe a little annoying in how deliberate, how slow, how cautious we are in our study and our application of Scripture and sometimes maybe we need to loosen up. <laughs> but here's why we do that. We don't want to draw you away from Jesus Christ. He bought you with His blood. You are precious to Him. And it's our job to protect you 
from giving your affections to something else or someone else. We don't want to let Tobiah in, and Tobiah is all over the place. So we're careful. And hopefully that will work out. <laughs> Pray for us so that we do that well. But this is just a, an illustration from Nehemiah about why that's important. Here's the second thing. Here, this is another way things were falling apart. Support for the priests had fallen away. This is in verses 10 to 13. Nehemiah says, I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled, each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable. And their duty was to distribute to their brothers." So this is a situation much like what happens to New Year's resolutions by February. We resolve with all our heart that we're going to change something, but time and inertia and temptation calls, cause those resolves to fall apart and lose the name of action, to quote Hamlet. In this case, back in chapter 10, Israel had made a covenant with God. And they had signed their names to it. And one of the things they resolved under solemn oath was this. We obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of the ground and the first fruits of all the fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord and to bring to the Levites the tithes from our ground. We will not neglect the house of our God. They promised we're going to support the Levites. We're going to bring their food. We're going to make sure they're cared for because they oversee the worship life of this community and we value that and we want them to be doing just that and we'll be the farmers and they'll be the worship leaders. We obligate ourselves. We sign our name. We're going to do this, right? Guess what? They couldn't keep their promises. They weren't being given the tithe. They weren't being supported. And so it says they fled to their fields. They had to go back to farming because they weren't being paid. They weren't getting fed. So the house of God was forsaken. The temple servants were in the fields, not in the temple. And that, of course, is evidence of a deeper spiritual issue, right? which is that their devotion to God himself had fallen away. The priests were the mediators between God and man, so they were very important to anybody who wanted to be in right relationship with God. They handled the sacrifices and so forth. So they became unimportant, not worth supporting, because the people thought their relationship with God was no longer important. They didn't need the priests. Once again, Nehemiah acted. He said, I confronted the officials, the leaders who were going to make this happen, and he appointed new ones that he considered reliable. 
And then he got that whole system going again. He got the tithes, the storehouses in place, and so on, so that the Levites could be supported again. This is another temptation we face today. There's no way around the implications on this for our giving. Jesus said in Matthew 6.21, Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. What you do with your money shows what you really value. Money is a barometer of our spiritual condition. And the New Testament's full of exhortations that we're to give our time, our energy, our money to the Lord. And the primary and the first place that goes to is His community, His local church. Because that's where we're meeting with God together. That's where we're building each other up. In the Lord, that's where we're being equipped for witness, and it takes resources to make that happen. So what does our giving say about how much we value the Lord and the building of His church? That's a question for you to ask yourself before God and see if He has anything to say about you. Maybe there's something to change. Maybe there's something to be glad about, just that the grace of God is in your life in that area. That's between you and the Lord. Well, we could say more, but I'll move on. Here's another decline that Nehemiah discovered and he dealt with. We've got to go through this dark valley a little bit longer, <laughs> but we will come out. Here's the third thing. The Sabbath was no longer being kept. This is in verses 15 to 22. We'll just read up to 18. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath. And bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. You keep hearing that word, Sabbath, Sabbath, Sabbath. You're profaning it. You're working on it. You're not supposed to. This is the other command of God they were breaking. Another thing that they promised in their signed covenant they wouldn't do, they're working on the Sabbath, contrary to God's word. Exodus 20, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. But they were working. They were treading wine presses. They were harvesting grain and figs. They were selling their goods. So the Sabbath day had become like a farmer's market. That was the farmer's market day. Gates of the city are open. Tyrians and all sorts of other people are coming in. There's trade going back and forth. It's a marketplace. That's what Sabbath turns into, a place where it's work. And so Nehemiah says he confronted the nobles. He's a very confrontational guy, isn't he? Every one of these things I confronted, I warned. It gets even more colorful, believe me. We're going to read some fun stuff. He doesn't hold anything back. He says, what is this evil thing that you are doing? Now, none of that activity was wrong in and of itself. People have to eat. 
People have to harvest things. Selling food's not wrong. But it's when they were doing it, that's what was wrong. They were doing it when they should have been resting and enjoying God rather than working. The Sabbath was one of those things that was to distinguish the people of Israel from everybody else. Here's a people whose God takes care of them. Here's a people who are called to rest by their God. He wants them to rest. He wants them to take a break. He wants them to enjoy his goodness. And so when the whole country shuts down on, on one day and doesn't do any work but just enjoys their God and, and thanks, thankfulness, that says, wow, that must be a good God. <laughs> it's about his honor. And their trust in him and their expectation that when I'm not working, he's still, he's still going to provide for me. But they weren't enjoying God's rest. They were working every single day. And when you think about it, that is really crazy. How broken do we have to be that we would disobey a command to rest? <laughs> you know? And I say we because I think we can relate to this. I certainly can. We don't want to stop working even when we don't have to. Why is that? I think we know the answer. We don't trust that God is good and that God will take care of us. We feel like we need to have the hands on the wheel all the time. I've got to make this happen. There's so much in front of me that I'm responsible for. There's people that depend on me. I have to do it. I have to keep going. I can't rest. There's a lot of I in that, though, right? There's a lot of me in that. So much depends on me, etc. That's just, we, in reality, we're saying everything depends on me, not on God. Responsibility is to work six days a week. Self-sufficiency is working seven days a week. Lack of trust is working seven days a week. Not that there can't be seasons when you have to forego rest. Not that the Sabbath day is binding on us in exactly the same way that it was for Israel. But a life without rest is a life that functionally says, I will take care of me, not God. And that's to dishonor him. Because he says, I want you to rest. He's made promises. I will never leave you or forsake you. Do not be dismayed. I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. To, to honor God is to believe those promises, to acknowledge your dependence on Him and your trust in Him, and rest and let Him run the universe while you're not. You never are anyway. But like we feel like our little part of the universe I can run but not really. More could be said about that. So what does Nehemiah do? He goes on to later verses. He orders the city gates to be shut. He puts guards at the gates. He keeps people from coming and going. He shuts down the, the farmer's market. Here's the last thing he encountered. Intermarriage with the nations had resumed. This is verses 23 to 28. Just read portions of it. In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, 
And half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them, and cursed them, and beat some of them, and pulled out their hair. I said it would be colorful. <laughs> and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. <laughs> he would be a colorful guy to have as your guest speaker on a Sunday morning, I'll tell you what. This would rate as a pretty colorful passage in Scripture. One commentator put it this way, Nehemiah here was all fire and earthquake. He curses people, he beats them, pulls out their hair, chases a guy out of his presence. That sounds a little bit extra, a little over the top, maybe. I don't think this is here so we can go and do likewise when somebody like bothers us, when we encounter somebody else's sin. Remember texts like Hebrews 10.30, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. But it does reflect the severity of the sanctions we deserve for our sin. We only need to look at the blood and the death of the, sac of the animal sacrifice system, and especially at the blood and the death of Jesus Christ on a cross, to realize what our sins deserve. It's a severe thing, sin is. So Nehemiah, he may have gotten a little extra, but his passion was coming from the right place. He understood, this is bad. This can't go on. That's how God feels about our sin. What was the sin, though, that provoked him? Well, it was the intermarriage with the unbelieving nations around them, which is something that kept happening over and over and over again in their history. It was the sin of Solomon, whose foreign wives turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, from 1 Kings. So sin was about turning away from the Lord to other gods. They were getting in bed with idolatry. Their, their affection and their devotion to God was waning, and so they were okay with you know, marrying into idolatrous nations and having kids who didn't even learn anything about Jerusalem and Judah. They didn't even speak the language, didn't know anything about their religion. They were okay with that. They were okay with the fact that they were marrying into idolatry. That's the issue. And that was the last straw. Um, because even the high priest's grandson had done this. We read that the son of Jehoiada was the son, he was the grandson of Eliashib, the high priest. He was the son-in-law of Sanballat, the Horonite. Now, Sanballat is another one of those enemies that we read about earlier in Nehemiah. He fought the, the renewal of Jerusalem. He didn't want the Jews there. He was against Nehemiah. He was also from somewhere else. And even his grandson had intermarried with one of the high priest's grandkids. Like, <laughs> the high priestly line was also now involved in this intermarriage with the other nations. That was just too much for Nehemiah. He chased him out of there. 
That's a temptation for believers of all generations. Whether it's through a choice of a marriage partner or if it's just something going on in our own hearts, our hearts can be turned away to other gods, to other things that we put our hope in, things that we think, if I have that, then I can be happy. If I don't have that, I can't be happy. That's a god. That's an idol. That's the thing that we look to for hope, for rescue, for salvation. We are tempted that way. The Apostle John's words to close his first letter to the church still apply to us today. He said, little children, keep yourselves from idols. He didn't say that because nobody was having that problem. He said that because the people in his churches were prone (laughs) to looking somewhere else than Jesus for their hope. We have that same temptation. Okay, we've covered the four things. And that's something of a downer, isn't it? (laughs) We don't want to end the sermon on that note, do we? Um, Not the most encouraging thing to go through a list of failures and sins. It was definitely a downer for Nehemiah. He reacts to all of this with a prayer, with, with actually four pleas to God. And so that's what we look at next, the plea of a longing heart. There are four verses that I skipped over when we were reading through this. Four times that Nehemiah made a plea to God, and those are a window into his soul about what he was thinking after all of his years of trying to make Jerusalem into a place and into a people that would bring glory to God and then seeing the whole thing fall apart. What was he thinking? What, what, What was his reaction to all that? Verses 14, 22, 29, and 31. I skipped these before. Listen to him pouring out his heart to God. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. And then his final words, the end of the Old Testament. Remember me, O my God, for good. Those are the prayers of a longing heart. The prayers of someone who's come to realize there's nothing more he can do to try to fix the brokenness of the people. He gave it his best shot. He risked his own life to go to this powerful king, Artaxerxes, for permission and materials to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. He paid the expenses for a lot of the workers to help make that city new again, to rebuild it. He led courageously. He read he led decisively. He, he led wisely. And when things went bad, he became the law enforcement, <laughs> the punisher even. He's done everything that was in his power to do, and still the old sin patterns are there. And that wasn't just Nehemiah's experience. That's the story of mankind from the beginning. What do we see as we fly over the Old Testament history? We see man created in God's image, 
endowed with dignity above all the rest of creation, and yet broken because of sin, and with no permanent recovery from that brokenness. In the Garden of Eden, you had two perfect people in a perfect world. Their life was full of purpose, full of resources. They had everything they wanted, everything they could imagine. God was their friend. He walked with them. And yet they decided, I'm going to rebel against Him. I like the idea that I can be like God and know good and evil. And so they disobeyed. In a perfect situation, they, they sinned when they had perfection. That's brokenness. Things fell apart within generations of that. Wickedness of man was great on the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That's Genesis chapter 6. That's, that's where it went from there. So God chooses a man named Abraham. A man he's going to bless. He's going to make him into a great nation. Going to be called Israel. And with that nation, he's going to enter into a covenant. I will be your God and you will be my people. He gave them the law through Moses. This is the way. Walk in it. And if you do, I will remain in your midst. I will bless you. But they couldn't keep it together. They departed from the law. By the end of the period of the judges, you've got the nation of Israel in 12 scattered tribes, each one doing what was right in his own eyes. But God in his mercy gave them a king, David, who gave them victory over all their enemies. And he gave them Solomon, who gave them wealth and prosperity. Surely that's where we get to the finish line. Surely that's going to fix things. But no, things fall apart. They keep pursuing false gods of the surrounding nations. They weren't faithful to the Lord. So God sent them into exile, into captivity for 70 years as a consequence for their sin. Then by His grace, He brought them back into their land, back into the city of Jerusalem. Surely, that would have produced some lasting change. We've been thoroughly chastised, and now we have this new chance to rebuild, and God's providing everything. And after a hundred years, it's looking pretty good. But Nehemiah sees it all fall apart in a couple of years after he leaves. Israel was like a patient with an incurable infection. I hear that the most powerful antibiotic that can be prescribed is vancomycin. And if, you can't, if that doesn't cure your infection, there's nothing else for you. Israel was like that patient with the infection that vancomycin doesn't work on. Everything's been tried for centuries to try and renew them, to try and get them back to God's original design. What was he, what were we created for? To give him glory, to enjoy his goodness, to do profitable and amazing things like him, live in this great world. But they could never get back there, ever, no matter what happened. They couldn't Put it back together again. Whoops. Just pulled out this. Am I back on? Okay. They fell apart. And so in exasperation, Nehemiah says to God, Remember me, oh my God, for good. It's like he's saying, I did my best, but I couldn't fix this. 
So remember, Lord, I was on your side. <laughs> remember me according to your steadfast love. <laughs> but also, he says, remember them. Remember those who desecrated the priesthood and the covenant. There does need to be justice for all of this sin somehow. And that's how the Old Testament ends, with this plea, this longing for mercy and justice, for God to come and do what no one has ever been able to do, which is fix the brokenness in the heart of mankind. Well, God answered. <laughs> and that's the last point that everything's been leading up to, God's answer. 400 years later, God told us what he was going to do all along to fix it. Mary will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He'll do it. Jesus is God's answer to our brokenness. Jesus, God the Son in human flesh, is the one who can do what Nehemiah could not do, what no earthly king can do, what no prophetic voice can do, what no law, however good, can do, what no amount of amazing incentives or dire punishments can do. Jesus alone can save us from our sin. And he does it on two levels. First, he dies on the cross bearing the blame and the punishment for every sin of everyone who will put their trust in him. He restores the relationship between God and man that was broken in the garden. In him we have forgiveness of sin and we're welcomed into God's favor. God's justice is satisfied. And for every believer there will be a resurrection and eternal glorious life. That's what Jesus does for everyone who trusts in him, something nobody else could possibly do. Only the God-man could do that. But on a second level, Jesus saves by giving us the Holy Spirit of God. He renews our natures. He makes us a new creation so that we're no longer slaves to sin, but now we have the desire to do God's will and the power to do God's will, to say yes to his commands, which we love. He's restoring the image of God in us that was broken and damaged by sin so that we live more and more according to the good design that he has for us. So let me close with this. You can summarize the whole lesson of the Old Testament this way. Things fall apart without Jesus. <laughs> okay? There's the, whole, there's the Old Testament. <laughs> Things fall apart without Jesus. He's the Savior we need. He's the answer to our brokenness. Self-will, self-improvement, self-reliance, bringing in an expert is not going to get it done. Nehemiah's only tools were to bring laws, persuasions, enticements, punishments, and those are the only tools that we have too. But Jesus has the cross, and he has the Spirit, and he brings forgiveness and a new heart. And God has provided him to you 
And to me, and to everyone who's willing to come to him humbly, arms open, giving up all confidence in ourselves, and receiving new life in the Spirit through faith in him. That's the posture that saves us. That's the posture that changes us. The Christian life is about agreeing with Jesus when he said, apart from me, you can do nothing, from John 15, 5. But it's also agreeing with Paul, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So that's how we get renewed. Confident dependence on Christ our Savior. That's how we get forgiven. That's how we change. That's how we become sweeter and sweeter as we grow older and older in the Lord. It can happen. We don't have to be grumpy old men and women at my age, you know, or beyond, right? We can become more and more like Christ because he's the one who just renovates the real you, the inner you. If he's not your Savior yet, it's as simple as opening your heart to him in repentance for your wrongdoing and believing in him as the one who died for your sins. If you already know him as Savior, then it will honor him and it will be good for you to treat him that way. <laughs> Don't try to do life without a relationship with Jesus. He is pleased to save you and he is going to do it completely one day in the new heaven and earth. Everything about you and everything about this world will be permanently fixed in Jesus Christ. Believe that and lean into it day by day. He wants us to see him as Savior. I save you, he says. That's the message of Ezra and Nehemiah and the message of the Old Testament and the message of the entire Bible. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for, uh, I guess, showing us what we can actually do which, apart from you, is nothing. We can't save ourselves. We can't fix what's wrong with the world. We can't fix what's wrong with us. But you can, and you do. You're the answer. We thank you for revealing that to us. And may we enjoy it for the rest of this day and this week coming and for the years to come. May we rest in having been laid hold of by your grace and counted as sons and daughters in your family, and made citizens of a new kingdom with a glorious future. Help us to lean into that and believe it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.